electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, my interview with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Prior to leading the CDC, Dr. Walensky was the chief of the Infectious Diseases Division at Massachusetts General Hospital and a professor at Harvard Medical School. She joined me at CNBC's Healthy Return Summit on May 11th, 2021, to talk about the push to vaccinate Americans, including teenagers, reopening schools this fall, and her experience leading the CDC through this unprecedented time. Here's our conversation. So we're in such an interesting time in the pandemic in the U.S. right now. There is so much hope right now as case numbers nationally are coming down. The CDC just put out these models saying we could be in for a really great summer, of course, depending on how well we adhere to some of the the um, social distancing and masking uh, and also how many people get vaccinated. Um, how are you looking at things where we are right now and where kind of things look over the next few months? Um, thank you. I- I feel some cautious optimism. Um, On the one hand, you're exactly right. Our case rates are coming down. Um, We're at now somewhere in the range of 40 to 45,000 cases per day on average, which is lower than we've been in a very long time. Um, But still, you know, about twice as high as we were last year at this time. At the same time, we have these vaccines that um, we know work. We know protect people. We know our hospitalizations are coming down. Our death rates are coming down dramatically. Um, What has happened however, is we've done an extraordinary job in getting people vaccinated um, really quickly. And now we have the hard work to do of getting um, more people vaccinated. So we know people who have really wanted the vaccine have rushed to get it. Um, And now we have to do the hard work of reaching the people who might not have been the first to sign up, who um, might not have, it might not have been as convenient for them initially, or they had more questions about the vaccine. And that's the hard work that we have ahead. Um, And it is going to be in those people that we really need to get vaccinated um, and to keep our case rates coming down. And so that's the work that, that the next few months will bring. What is your expectation of, you know, how many teenagers will get vaccinated? We saw Kaiser Family Foundation poll out saying 30% of parents of kids ages 12 to 15 are saying, yep, right away, I want the vaccine for my kids. But about a quarter are saying, no, definitely not. I do not want this vaccine. How hopeful are you? What are your kind of expectations for how many folks in that group will get vaccinated and how important it is for, for kids who are teenagers to get vaccinated? Um, Well, maybe I'll first start as a mom of several teenagers, um, all of whom have really leaned in and wanted the vaccine because they really want their lives back. They've lost periods of time in college and they didn't get to do many of the things that they wanted to do. And now with vaccines, they will be able to do so. Um, We have seen that vaccine hesitancy 
um, decreases over time. So this happened with adults too. Initially, people, uh, you know, might not have been uh, wanting to be the first to roll up their sleeves. They might not have wanted their teenager to be the first to roll up their sleeves. But over time, as more and more people get vaccinated, we've given over 250 million doses of this vaccine. Um, and, you know, the safety and efficacy signals are really, really great. Um, and so, uh, you know, over time, I think more and more people um, will see teens getting vaccinated. We'll see that they are gathering with um, safely, that the vaccine is safe in them, and that, um, you know, they will be encouraged and want to get their teens vaccinated. And how will it change um, school for 12 to 15 year olds if, if a number of them do get vaccinated? You know, we have to see where we are, both in terms of cases and in terms of um, rates of vaccination. Um, of course, you know, middle and high schools will have um, the opportunity to have their students vaccinated, but younger schools, elementary schools, will not yet have an opportunity to, to have their kids vaccinated. Overall, I want to just encourage folks to recognize that I think we should be in full school, um, full in-person school in the fall. Um, we have vaccinated over 80% of our teachers and educators. Um, in the fall, we will have, or I hope um, sooner than the fall, we'll have the opportunity to vaccinate our teens. Um, and so I really am hopeful for a really uh, robust, full in-person school year in the year ahead. So this sort of outlook we've been looking at that, that feels so optimistic kind of goes to the summer. And we, we remember last summer when cases were down to 20,000 a day, and that felt good, even though 20,000 a day is still kind of a lot, um, but it's less than we have now. Um, what happens after the summer, do you think? I know it's dependent on a lot of factors, but you know, Dr. Gottlieb has talked about fall, us seeing potential sporadic resurgences. Do you think this is a seasonal virus? I know I'm asking you multiple questions, but what does it kind of look like beyond the summer, do you think? Um, we have seen other coronaviruses be seasonal viruses, and, that, and yet this coronavirus has not proven to be seasonal. So I think we'll have to see what happens. Um, but we have uh, been had to be humble with regard to this in the hopes that this would go away over the summer. And then, of course, last summer we saw a surge. In terms of what happens in the fall, I really think that this is up to the American people. Um, we can hang in a little bit longer, keep our masks on, get our case rates down, and get people vaccinated. If we can get up to 70 80% of our population vaccinated by the fall, I think we're in really good shape. Um, however, if we um, are unable to do so, then I think we may, have, um, we may have more pockets of infection. What I think is also really important for people to realize is it, it's, you know, 80% is an average, right? An average of the entire country. But this, that, this uh, virus is an opportunist. And so if you have a community that is only 40 or 50% vaccinated, then in fact, it's going to land there and that's where um, you'll have disease. So we really do need to get not just 70, 80% of the country vaccinated, but we need to get 70 to 80% of each community vaccinated. And what does it look like for those communities that have uh, lower vaccination rates, if they have those those outbreaks, um, I mean, I would also wonder if people who don't want to get vaccinated may be less likely to adhere to uh, <clears throat> new impositions of, of mandates and social distancing and closures. So how, how does the country kind of navigate through those? 
Well, I think we have to do this um, not one community at a time, but one person at a time and sort of recognize that even though somebody might live in a community where a lot of people are getting vaccinated, you know, they may be willing to get vaccinated when you uh, understand what those individual um, hesitancies are about. It's really not at the community level. It's at the individual level. Um, Was it that it wasn't convenient for them? Was it that it was too hard to book an appointment? Was it that they didn't really understand the science behind how we were able to get here so quickly? Are they worried about the safety? And we have to meet people one person at a time because once we start getting making inroads in those communities, um, you know, community members can then be influential to other community members. Um, I do want to highlight now: vaccines are available in many uh, in many um, pharmacies by just walk-in. And more and more, we have supply that is allowing pharmacies to provide walk-in appointments. People can text get vax um, and uh, find and text their zip code to that uh, to get vax and find a vaccine um, that is available uh, in many different places near them. You'll get a. a, a list of the places you can get vaccine near you. It's easier and easier now to get vaccinated. And so we do want to make sure that people recognize that um, for all those who just couldn't find the vaccine before, now it's it should be at your fingertips. Yeah, I've actually done the get vax text. It does work. <laughs> uh, and in terms of, you know, looking at the fall, um, we're talking about getting people just their first <clears throat> round of vaccines. But the drug companies are talking about having booster shots ready for the fall. Do you think we're going to need boosters that soon? Um, and then I've got a lot more questions for you about boosters. But when do you think, do you think we're going to have to get boosters? Um, the first thing I want people to realize, and I think that this hasn't been clear, is we are talking boosters. But right now, if you have two doses of the vaccine, of the mRNA vaccines, you're protected. You don't need to wait for a booster, you're protected. What we are talking about is thinking ahead. What happens if in a year from now or 18 months from now, your immunity wanes? And that's really our job is to hope for the best and plan for what might happen if we need further boosters in the future, the way we get flu vaccine boosters every year. Um, We don't know exactly when. We don't even know if we're going to need boosters, but we're planning for it just in case. Um, It is the case that the first populations that got vaccinated were our older populations, our populations in our long-term care facilities, our more frail populations. And those might be the populations who had um, less immunity to begin with, who had weaker immune systems to begin with. So we want to be prepared for those populations if that is the case. And how do you think it'll make sense to determine if a booster is needed? I mean, obviously what's going on in the community with infection rates, but also will we be checking titers, you know, the same way we check, you know, are our measles titers still high? Is that something that you think we'll be doing to see who needs a booster and when? Um, We're actually doing the science right now on that and checking, um, you know, checking immunity of people who have been vaccinated months ago, um, many months ago, early people who were vaccinated. Um, I'm not certain that we're going to be in a place that we're going to do mass serologies looking for immunity. It may likely be that we'll understand at a population level when people's immunity starts to wane and we'll recommend boosters um, in that period of time. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Another question that I get a lot from people, and I, I don't actually know the answer. If you got one shot the first time, if you got Moderna or Pfizer or J&J, and we do end up needing a booster a year from now or whenever, um, will you be able to take a different shot uh, than you got the first time around? And, and what kind of testing do you think should be required of the, the companies just to know, you know what happens when you get uh, a Pfizer after a J&J or whatever? Um, really great question. So right now we are recommending that if you get your first shot as, uh, as a, J, as a um, Pfizer, you get your second shot as a Pfizer. If you got your first shot as a Moderna, you get your second shot as a Moderna. We all understand that that is going to be complex to do over time if we need boosters. So the companies, in fact, right now are doing what we call the crossover studies. What if you got one and then you um, then go and get the other? Um, and so those studies are actually ongoing. And I'm hopeful that um, it, we can sort of go down the path of getting something else, but we'll wait and see what those studies show. Hmm. And looking outside the U.S., it almost seems like, you know, we're talking about all this optimism here in the U.S., but then you turn on the news and you see what's happening in India, and it's just horrifying. And I wonder how you're looking at how this pandemic is likely to, to keep playing out around the world as we see vaccination rates where they are and vaccine access where they are in many other countries. What is this going to look like? This sort of, we're not in a bubble in the U.S., but in some ways it feels like like we are, but we're not. So how does this look to you? Right. So we have um, we've had one of the highest mortality rates of this disease um, anywhere around the world. And so we had a responsibility to what I say, put on our own oxygen mask before helping others. But we're, we've done so. And now I think really is the time to focus and make sure um, that we're helping others as well. Here's what we know. We know that the more virus that circulates, the more it mutates the more it mutates, the more likely we will get a variant and the more possibility that a variant could evade our protection from, from vaccines. We know that there are numerous variants circulating here in the United States. Um, the B117, or otherwise known as the UK variant, is now the predominant um, uh uh, virus that is circulating here in the United States. Over 72% of sequences are related to that variant now. And so what we really need to do is decrease um, viral replication, not just here in the United States, but really around the world. Um, I think we now recognize that this is a global pandemic and what is global has the potential of coming to the United States. Um, and so I think those efforts are, are, are key to controlling not just around the world, but here at home. Mm. Do you think that uh, waiving IP on the vaccines, as the Biden administration has now expressed support for doing, uh, will accomplish um, greater vaccine access in any sort of time frame that could be helpful with the pandemic? Um, you know, I'm going to defer to the office of um, U.S. Trade, Rep the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, who made that announcement. But I will say that I do think it is an important step to ensuring vaccine access. I also think we need to recognize that there's a lot that we can do now in terms of helping these countries, not just with vaccine, but with um, oxygen supply, uh, drug supply, and we at the CDC have been um, providing an a, a amount of technical support in. Uh, testing strategies, use of personal protective equipment, um, surveillance strategies, and others. Mm. 
I want to ask you also about drugs for COVID. Um, the antibody drugs. I heard you say um, just as you were coming into the the job as CDC director that you know they're they're just too hard to really be a panacea for the pandemic. What's your take on them? I mean, is it still the same uh, now? And um, would new delivery mechanisms for the antibody drugs be helpful if you could give them as a subcutaneous shot, you know, right on the spot rather than having to set up an IV infusion? Uh, would that help? And how helpful can these drugs really be in the U.S. and around the world, do you think? Um, there have been numerous logistical challenges in scaling up the antibodies um, around the country. I think the people who've been trying to do that recognize that, certainly. And there have also been variant challenges. Um, some of the variants have been able to evade the antibodies. So, so we've been focusing now more on antibody cocktails than a single antibody. Um, Certainly further delivery methods like subcutaneous that um, you don't need to set up an IV infusion. Um, and I know that a lot, of, um, a lot of healthcare centers have been working on how we could roll out larger scale uh, antibody delivery mechanisms. Um, I think it does speak to the broader um, need for not just antibody infusions, but we, you know, we, need a, we need an outpatient drug for this virus, right? We don't, um, to treat it. Everybody's focusing on vaccination we do need to focus on vaccination. But once we recognize that we may not get cases down to zero, there will be cases. And, um, you know, we need a plan that is not an IV plan for how we treat this virus. I know NIH's key focus is on that. One of their key focuses is on that. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, the, the research world is looking towards not just um, inpatient treatments, but outpatient treatments. Are you optimistic about any of the programs that you've seen for antiviral drugs? I know Pfizer has one and hopes to have perhaps data by the end of the year and even applying for emergency use authorization if those data are good. Merck has the Ridgeback molecule, which seems to be progressing more slowly than I think a lot of people expected. Are you hopeful? And it's also just been so hard to get oral antivirals for, for or antivirals for viral diseases, obviously. It's just been a tough class. Um, antivirals certainly are a tough class. I, we, we've seen many um, just in the last several decades, um, and we've seen many for flu now. We have several for flu now, influenza now. So um, I am hopeful that with all hands on deck in the medical and research community, in the, uh, in the uh, pharma industry, that we will get to an antiviral. Certainly, we needed to focus on people who are dying. We, we have remdesivir now that we can use in people in the hospital. Um, we need to focus on vaccine. And now we really need to focus in the outpatient area. Mm. Um, you know, Dr. Gottlieb, who's a CNBC contributor, so I'm citing him quite a number of times here, but um, he mentioned last week, he thinks it's almost appropriate even now to think about lifting indoor mask mandates as vaccination rates get higher and numbers improve. What do you think about that? It seemed like a big step even to go the outdoor route. What, what about indoor mask mandates? Um, you know, we at CDC have the responsibility of providing guidance and recommendations for individuals and for the public and for areas of high vaccination and low disease, as well as for areas in this country that have high disease and low vaccination rates. So um, we still have about a third of counties in this country that have over 100 cases per 100,000, very high transmission rates, and many counties and areas in this country that have less than 20% vaccination rates. So in that context, um, we are keeping our public health guidance to recommend, uh, recommend um, 
masking for people who are vaccinated. But if you look at um, our guidance that was just last released, we are saying that it is safe to do all of those things that you want to do if you're vaccinated. We do still recommend that you mask, um, but you don't need to do distance and you really can get back to going to the gym, going to museums, going to all the places that you want to be. And, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about your experience coming in as director of the CDC at this incredibly unusual time. It it almost seemed like you had this kind of dual uh, mandate. One was work on the pandemic. Another was that you talked about was increasing morale within the CDC, which had just been uh, devastated, I think, over the last year or so, or maybe even longer. Um, On that second one, restoring morale within the CDC, are things changing? Do you feel like it's getting better? I mean, the CDC in many ways is still a punching bag. Like Michael Lewis's book just came out. It does not portray portray CDC very well. There are a lot of criticisms that the CDC has been slow on things like aerosol um, declarations as a main way that the the, vac- the virus spreads. How is how does morale look there now? And, and are you transforming things in the agency? Well, I think you'd have to talk to the people within the agency to how to see how they're feeling. Um, I kind of feel like both of those missions go hand in hand because what the agency really needed to have was to have their scientific voice back. Um, and so I have spent a lot of time talking with them um, about ensuring that it's the scientific message that is getting out, that that is what we will convey to each other, to the public, and that is what will drive our recommendations and our guidance. So I, I do think that Um, In my communications with them about making sure that they understand the science speaks, in my communications with the public and making sure that the public knows that the science is speaking again, um, I think that both of those things have lifted morale. I think people, you know, people are tired. They've been working on behalf of the public, on behalf of public health um, for their careers, but really all hands on deck for this past year. Um, So so people are definitely tired, um, but I do think morale is improving. And my last question for you is um, just kind of a personal one. What has this experience been like for you? I I imagine you knew it was going to be a lot of political pressure. I mean, just hearing from what Dr. Fauci has dealt with um, and sort of the backlash to, to saying things like we still need to wear masks and things like that. And I remember the day that you said that you were scared about the rates um, right now and what could happen. And you had a sense of impending doom. And there must have just been an incredible amount of backlash to that. Um, what what has this been like for you? It, it, is it worse than you expected in terms of that? You know, it's been extraordinary. I, I will say um, I came into the CDC on January 20th, having spent a year on the front lines at hospitals, um, watching what was happening with disease and with um, people dying and with um, stress in the healthcare system, people worried for their own health. It's been an extraordinary um extraordinarily difficult year, even before I got to the CDC. Um, so, you know, my, I find my job, there, there's pressure, every job has pressure. The pressure that I feel most is to make sure that I protect the public. And as long as I know every day that I close my day, knowing that I have let the science speak, um, I have deferred to the subject matter experts, and that um, when I've read that science and deferred to those experts, um, that I am doing my absolute best to protect the public. Um, That's what I sort of go to bed with every day, and that's my plan every morning when I get up. That was CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She joined me at CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit on May 11th, 2021. 
The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For more information on upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Thanks for listening. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.